Hey, this is Dave McCall, host of the QTS Experience, and this week I'm joined by the anti-architect Christian Giordano. Now, Christian isn't against architecture, clearly one of his life's passions, but he is for leveraging AI, virtual reality, 3D printing, and more tech to disrupt one of the oldest industries in history. He explains how on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on Earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Christian, welcome to the QTS Podcast. How are you today? I'm good, Dave. How are you? Unbelievable. It's, uh, I'm down in Atlanta, and it is absolutely beautiful outside. It's maybe 80 degrees, not hardly any humidity or cloud in the sky. And I'm wondering, what am I doing sitting in a studio when I could be out on my boat or messing around on the disc golf course. Gosh, it's pretty outside. We've just come through a week worth of rain and uh, beautiful. Same here in New York City, where I am. It is uh, It rained and today the sun is out and it's about 75. So for us, we're on borrowed time right now. Yeah, I, I believe it. Well, look, as we dive into the conversation, um, it's a really cool path kind of on how we got here. I had a guest on earlier this year, a guy named Jack Osa, who is an architect. And um, I know we're going to talk a little bit later about some of the things I talked to, to Jack about. I'm really curious to see how the industry responds, in particular, on the commercial or public side, as we're in a post-COVID world. Um, Jack's story of how he became an architect period, and then got to the United States is one of the most inspiring entrepreneurial stories I've heard in a long time. I really, really admire that guy. Um, and then when we considered having the conversation, besides that topic, which we'll get to, I really loved your, um, your approach to technology, which when I talk to people in industries that have been around for a long time, mortgage uh, or banking, um, architecture would be one that I, I think of, maybe law. I don't usually have them start off with this really exciting idea on what they're doing in the world of tech. It's usually pretty resistant. And I thought, wow, my audience would really dig hearing that story. But before we do that, I got to ask the question that I'm wondering, and I'm sure the people that are listening to this right now are wondering, which is, how it is that you became an architect and why would you, is your, do you come from a family of architects? Because that's a tough one. To <laughs> How'd you end up doing that? So, you know, I, I think it comes from, I, I, I've always, I give my mother this credit. My mother loved, loves to this day, good design and modern design. Hmm. And I don't think she quite understood realistically what that meant but she knew she didn't like traditional. And for whatever reason, living in the suburbs where I grew up in New Jersey, she was always seeking sort of modern architecture, which really, really, when you think about it, in her perspective, was more like 1950s modern, what we would call classic modern. Right. And she tried to really we always say she wanted to make our house look like, you know, the movie Beetlejuice. Oh, yeah. She, she wanted our house to look like the Beetlejuice house. If she could have done it that way, that would have been her house. This crazy, you know, very ultra modern kind of coming from outer space uh, type design. And 
that always intrigued me. And we always had contractors in our house and we were always renovating this or redoing the kitchen. You've never seen someone renovate their kitchen more than my mother. <laughs> um, and I just became interested in the process in that time of construction and kind of seeing how the contractors came in and did things, whether they did them well or they did them poorly. My mother always said that every contractor she worked with did them did it poorly. Hmm. So what did that mean? And I think a lot of it was the expectations of design and not being able to meet her 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 expectations and her criteria. And that just got me interested in the entire process. And somewhere along the line, I think it was an uncle that said, oh, you should be an architect. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And I did a lot of the traditional stuff that people did. Uh, you know, I, I liked Legos, not that much, but I did do a lot of model making. Mm. I loved making uh, wood models, but I very quickly graduated to model cars and airplanes and things with engines, things that were less static. Mm. And that kind of just propelled me into that more more of the design side and ended up going to, to architecture school in, in Miami mm. as a result. Um, so when you when you talk about that, I, I also run into people like Jack was a drawer. He loved to yeah. draw and sketch. Did you do that much at all? I like to make. I okay. like to physically make things. Models were my thing, whether it was clay or uh, out of wood or building things in the backyard or some sort of sculpture for, for, I was more of a tinkerer kind of maker more so than a drawing person. Although I, I was good at very technical drawing. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not a necessarily a great freehand drawer or, or I couldn't sit and draw a scene very well. Is there any correlation between that or is that, do you find that, um, People who are six, well, I don't even want to say successful architects, but people that are drawn to it, do they find that they're more tinkerers, hands on, I've got to build it? Or do you find that they're more sort of conceptual, sketch it out? What, or is there no correlation that really doesn't matter? No, there's very much. And I, and I would almost say it's probably, um, I wouldn't say 50 50, but let's say 60 40, where most people that go into architecture and design are much more conceptual, mm -hmm. right? Probably about 60%. They're very good at the idea side. They're very good at the, you know, the conceptual side, that sort of amorphous concept that comes out of nowhere and they're able to visualize that or sketch it. The others are very technical, mm -hmm. right? Um, where some people go into the, the field of architecture specifically for the technicality of it. They, they find building code fascinating. They find constructability fascinating or structure or mechanical systems and kind of blending that all together. I think for me, I was a bit of both. I like the kind of out there conceptual stuff, but I also like the technical side of things. And I think for me, that sort of physical manifestation of, uh, of putting things together and tinkering was really what led me towards the profession. And I could... I could excel because I wasn't a math person, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone thinks, oh, you're an architect. You have to be uh, super good at math. I'm really not very good at math. I'm good at the visual side of things or right. seeing how things might come together. You don't think any of your clients right now as they're walking across a bridge are getting a little nervous about, what do you say about math? I mean, that's a pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty arch, but <laughs> let's make sure the geometry is working. No, yeah. don't answer that. Why Miami? I'm curious. You know, when I hear... 
Um, and I don't know, a t- I haven't talked to a ton of people who've actually gone to architect school. They've gone to school that mm-hmm. had an architect program with the idea that they would end up at a, you know, a more, they would transfer later to a more advanced uh, program uh, and then go on to get licensed. But um, I've never heard anybody talk about Miami. That surprised me. I've heard Southern California. I've heard other places, but not Miami. Yeah, so I, I had a uh, uh, someone that I had worked with uh, in New Jersey that had gone to the University of Miami, and they uh, they talked all about the fact that it was a very uh, very good school technically, um, and I always thought of the University of Miami as this massive school. You think of the football team, right. you think of all of that, especially when I went in the in the late eighties, early nineties. You know that was their time to shine. And when I got there, it's actually very different. It's a small school. It's a private school. It's less than 10,000 people uh, at the school. So it actually was a much more intimate environment than many of the other schools that I had gone to see. They had a dean there. Her name was Elizabeth Platter Zeidberg. Um, She's no longer the dean there. She was there for a very long time. Mm. She comes from this uh, school of uh, what we call new urbanism, which is this blending of the idea of the city and the suburb, Hmm. that there are some wonderful things in the city and there are some wonderful things in the suburbs and how do you marry the two? And the execution of that ended up um, to be some of the the most uh, world-renowned developments in a lot of places in Florida and California that they use these principles of new urbanism to build new towns and new cities. And I just found that very fascinating, right? That there's Oh, because I always I was always a New York City person. I loved being in New York City, but I also had an affinity for the suburbs. That's where I grew up. I mm-hmm. probably knew I'd raise my family there at some point. And how do you blend the two? And this school was very, very much along those lines of architecture, but also always in the context of a much larger city or town or suburb, whatever that might be. And what are all of the effects um, that you as the architect can have in these environments and how does it affect actually day-to-day people's lives and how they walk on the street, where they park their car versus where they walk their dog. And I thought, Oh, that's pretty cool. You can actually think about that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just the individual building. It's not, you know, the, the museum, the very cool museum you're going to build one day. It's a bigger context that you're in. Um, When you came out of it, did you have that same appreciation or, or had your mind changed or do you have a greater appreciation for that? So I definitely had a greater appreciation for it later on in my career. I will tell you that coming out of it, um, I wanted to go see what the most modern, you know, amazing cutting edge architects were doing, which is why I ended up going essentially directly to graduate school at UCLA, because that's where those professors were. And I had to be in their presence. right? Right. There was something in me that said, I've got to work with Frank Gehry. I've got to work with uh, this guy, Tom Main at, at Morphosis. Mm-hmm. These were the most cutting edge architects. This guy, Daniel Liebeskin, actually, who ultimately went on to, you know, design the New World Trade Center site. Mm. Um, these were all those professors there. And they were really that that the term of black cape architects. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard that no, or if your audience have heard that. It's sort of the it's called the star architect. Um, that was just about starting at that time that these guys were the modern masters, you know, the, 
the, the everything that they designed was revolutionary. And it truly was. So I wanted to be part of that. And it became more about, you know, so I went from the University of Miami, where it was about the city and the town and the, the, the landscape, right. to the individual building that was going to, you know, had to stand out and stand on its own and be a, you know, a temple. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, um, well, first of all, I was going to say, if you came out, going into that program and came out at 21 years old, really um, enamored, you'd be the exception. I couldn't imagine <laughs> uh, myself at 21. But, you know, of all those names you named, the only one that I have some familiarity with, um, when I familiar, I just recognized was Frank, yeah. um, Gary. And um, uh, I was... Was he Canadian or from the Northeast? I forget where he's from, but um, so did you, you took classes from him? Yeah, I took, took, took classes with, with Gary at, at UCLA. Gary, and yes, right. he is Canadian, Yeah, uh, but moved to Los Angeles, the Southern Los Angeles, uh, Southern California and Los Angeles area, um, probably when he was relatively young, maybe in his 30s or 40s. I don't quite know his bio yeah. uh, offhand, but... You know, he was the guy who, and it's interesting when I, you know, now we're talking about sculpture and, you know, tinkering. Here's a guy who really was enamored by art and sculpture and how that could turn into architecture. Mm. Uh, and for him, it was these shapes and the sort of solids and voids. And that's why if you know any of Frank Gehry's work, especially the most recent work, it is a lot of shapes, right? And it's a lot of collisions of different forms that come together and create these amazing interior spaces and crazy exterior spaces that somehow don't fit into the context of a city, mm. yet begin to reshape the city um, in its own way. So like a Bilbao, Spain, when he built the Guggenheim there, mm. that there was nothing there. And he almost invented that city in a sense by they invested in him. He built this incredible museum and an entire um, um Riverscape shows up uh, years and years later uh, around this museum and really has changed the way that people live in that city. It's pretty fascinating how that can, how that kind of thing can happen. It, buildings like that capture your imagination. I don't know how practical it is as a, you know, if you're in there and you're trying to maximize space for people and I, I, I don't know, but when I, we just were watching the other night, this new show, um, Foundations, trying it out on Apple TV. It's uh, on a series that Isaac Asimov wrote back in the 60s, a sci-fi series. And one of the things that my wife and I remarked on as we looked at how they're imagining the buildings, and we were talking about um, Frank Geary, and I imagine some of the buildings that he's made, or, or architects like that, these beautiful things of art... Um, and sculpture, it, it almost has this otherworldly, you know, it, it's not just a, and no disrespect to rectangles or squares, <laughs> but it, it just, it invokes, I, at least in me, and I think in a lot of people, this, um, a response, a response of beauty. And that, how remarkable is that? When the human, when human beings can do that, where, where you just, it, it evokes um, something of pleasure, something of curiosity. It, it just, it blows my mind that there are a few people, and we know their names, that have the ability to bring that together and assemble a talented team, obviously, to help them mm -hmm. put it together. Um, it, did, that, did that resonate with you? Were you, um, I mean, but 
let me, I guess there's two questions I'm wondering. Did that inspire you? Okay, I want to make more buildings like this, but there's only a few of those. You know, I would think that toll bridges and, um, you know, regular, uh, regular uh, pedestrian type everyday stuff pays the bills way more than that miracle building you get to build for a city or a, you know, a country. Yeah, at some point that you, you as an architect, when you work in the professional, when you get into the profession and you start working, you, you a lot of times, and it's almost the educational process sets you up a little bit for disappointment. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you are going, the joke is always, you get into, uh, you get, start working at a firm and you're working on the bathrooms for the next year inside <laughs> a building, right? And, and it, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, it's very true. <laughs> Architecture is a profession that takes many, many years to get good at. Mm. Um, you don't necessarily have to be old, mm. uh, but you do need experience. Mm-hmm. And even a Gary, you know, he'll tell you he didn't get good until he was 60 years old. Mm. And he's only seen this trajectory of himself, you know, in the later years of his life. Mm. Um, but what I did learn from him is he actually sees his buildings as very simple. Uh, very elegant, um, that there's a simplicity to them, even though they look complex, sort of the way things engage with one another. It's meant to be calming and simple and easy. And and just as you said, you know, it's a, you get a different experience when you come into a building like that. So for me, later on now in my career, we're trying to emulate that. We don't have the same type of commissions as Guggenheim's and things like that. (laughs) But as we begin to progress, you know, we do get some pretty amazing opportunities and we really try to hone in on, well, you know, maybe we don't have, uh, you know, an entire city behind us giving us money to build this building. You know, there's a client involved and they usually have a very specific budget. But what in that budget, where can we spend that client's money that we can get the real bang for the buck, right? And get uh, get something a little bit more special than we would have if we just kind of treated it all as just any old project. Where are those opportunities that we can find along the way? And I think we've done that in our firm. And so you can take a building if we're doing a you know a hotel, and those opportunities are are you know pretty easy to find, mm. right? Um, but you can also take a building. We'll do industrial work and the industrial and cooking commissaries and these very complicated, cool programs that you, that don't necessarily make, you know, quote, beautiful architecture. You'd be shocked how exciting those are for young architects here in our firm, because there's an opportunity to think about it a little bit differently. And where could we spend some money and, and, and make this cooking commissary a little bit more special than the next one that we did. And you're constantly looking for these opportunities and it gets people excited about almost any kind of project you work on, which is which is wonderful. When you came out of school, did you, you know, what was that like? Did you go, obviously you didn't stick, well, I shouldn't say obviously. Um, did you stick around in L.A. or did you come back out east or what was? Uh... I did not. I, um, I had worked, when I was in Miami, I worked for a, an architecture firm that's no longer in business, Swanky Hayden Connell, uh, the principal of that firm. Uh, said to me offhandedly one day, hey, if you ever come back to, uh, if you ever come back to New York City, our main office is in there, absolutely call me uh, if you need a job. And so after UCLA, I, I loved California, mm-hmm. I really did, but it wasn't for me. I, I'm just an East Coast person, I can't explain it. 
Um, I love visiting there. Um, You know, it's just not not my thing for whatever reason in California. And I knew that, you know, I'd kind of gotten that out of my system and I wanted to go back to the Northeast. I called this guy Richard up and I said, hey, remember me? And, you know, I don't think he quite remembered me, (laughs) Um, but he was gracious enough to offer me a job. And I got a job in New York City and they were a big, big corporate firm. And so that kind of set me up to now being in a corporate architecture firm, which is very different from a um, from a let's let's call it a, a Gary kind of firm, which I would I would refer to as a studio based firm. A project comes in, you know, everyone in that studio concentrates on that project. You know, it's sort of one voice behind the architect, the the main like a Gary that is really, you know, where where everyone's working in his voice and in his hand and how it ultimately gets executed. A corporate firm is very different. You know, there's many, many voices and there's many, many projects. There could be hundreds or thousands of projects going on at any one time. So it's a totally different way of working. But the reality is it's the way most architects coming out of school end up at corporate firms. When you showed up, did you have to do some of those bathrooms you were talking about? Is, is that? The oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Plenty of bathrooms. You get good at uh, a lot of the a lot of the very technical things. They, they throw you in. If you're good, you get if you're lucky, you get put with a good mentor. I always had very good technical mentors hmm. uh, and you begin to shape your path in a corporate firm um, where there could be hundreds or thousands of people. And, you know, now kind of owning a firm, it's uh, it's important to me to kind of see how people do begin to shape their path because you can take uh, many different routes. You can you can become a very technical architect. You can become a very design oriented architect. You can go into purely interiors. You can uh, go into the project management side of it um, or the firm management side of it. There's many, many avenues. And I think what's nice about a corporate firm is that people actually get a very nice variety of experiences. And you could take years and years, 10, 20 years to kind of figure out, well, where's my place and what am I actually very good at? Mm-hmm. And that that's the beauty of a, of, a, of a large corporate firm. Now, do you have projects around you now that you can show friends or family or kids and say, hey, I, I mean, before you got to where you're at now, but was you were coming up in that corporate world, you know, I, I did that column or I did that building or that, you know, that's mine. Do you have any I, of that? to this day, still get excited <clears throat> if we pass something that I even just touched for a minute, right? Like, I remember we worked on a school very early on in my career. Right. I couldn't tell you what I did on that school. Right. I worked on whatever plans was I was given. But I, uh, the pride I have when sure. I still pass that school, like, hey, I did that. That's so cool, That's you right. know? And up to the point of built things I actually did actually design every little nook and cranny of, right? And I still get, my kids made fun of me the other day. We did these little, um, we did these little security booths mm-hmm. in front of um, the United Nations many, many years ago. Right. They were screening rooms. You basically go in and there's a, a you know, a, a man portal. You put, you walk through like the airport. You put your bag through right. it. And these were tiny little buildings. And I, we passed them uh, you know, a few months ago. And I said, look, girls, you know, I, I designed those. And they said, what? 
that? And they laughed. And I said, I, no, I'm like, are you kidding? You know, I'm so proud of those yeah. things. They're great. Anything you design is fun to see. You know, it reminds me, I don't know why, but as you're describing that, I have this huge smile on my face because I'm channeling every dad everywhere. And somehow it looks like David Letterman saying, that's real work there, doggone it. You know, bringing his Midwest, Indiana, relocated to the Northeast. That's, that's what work looks like, you bunch of millennial Gen Zers. Show me your talk ticks. I don't want to hear your snap pages. I love it. No, I'm this, you know, I've never been an architect, but um, two things you said there that cracked me up. One was when I was a kid, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I had to, I was not getting along with my parents. I didn't, I wasn't having trouble with drugs or alcohol, but I was having a problem with an attitude. So I, um, my listeners have heard me many times say this. So I, I thought I'd be smart to escape authority. I went and got my GED and joined airborne infantry. That's a genius way to escape authority. And I remember my dad talking to me a few months uh, after jump school, and I'm, I'm at my unit, and he's like, wow, what are, you, what are you learning today? I'm pretty sure for the first six months, all I learned how to do was buff floors. I was the master floor buffer, rake, you know, sweeper. There was not a lot of, uh, I never had to go to combat, but there was, you know, it was just this utilitarian, you're the new dude or dudette. It's just the way it is. If the barracks needs more pain or if the vehicles need to be repaired or, you know, whatever. It's so funny. And I didn't appreciate it then, but now in my 50s, I appreciate, and I'm not saying that there aren't opportunities to fast track. When, when I say mm -hmm. pay your dues, I don't. I don't know that everybody in every circumstance, it should be a You know, we should do an evaluation, and it's just like a kid in school. If if this kid has the intellectual ability and the maturity to go along with it to skip classes or whatever, um, then do it. Let's let's fast track it. Keeping in mind the community is just as important as the intellectual ability to make sure the columns all total up at the end or or whatever it is. Right. But um, but for most of us sort of to your point to Gary before, it's the molding, it's the grind, it's the disappointments, it's the, it's the accomplishments. I don't know what I did in that school, but whatever I did, it's, it, you know, it's linear, it works, and they're not complaining. And it, it also, I believe in, um, you get some of those early successes and some of that early accomplishment. And if you don't feel any joy, well, maybe there's an indicator that maybe in spite of your academic ability, this is not for you. But if you do, even if your academics were lumpy, we had that a lot in, I've seen this so many times in my career. I'm not an engineer by training. I just sort of ended up in ID, um, IT on the job. You know, if you could get the fax machine to work in the 80s and 90s, you're the IT guy, right? And just eventually into building uh, and solutioning, you know, massive environments for some of the largest, if not the largest IT companies on earth, just because you have an aptitude. But if I hadn't grounded out in that, those early days of figuring out how to get yeah. along with people and solve problems, I would not have been successful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I, you've got, as I said, this is a, you play the long game. If you commit to the architecture world and you've got to learn and, and I learn every day. I was actually just talking to my partner about, some of the mistakes we made early on in a large project that we had here that probably about five years ago um, and not not mistakes on the project itself, but on mistakes of not recognizing the personalities on the project yeah. with the client weren't going to work. And we learned I, I learned more from that probably than anything I've ever learned. And in the in the end, 
we're very, very close with the client now. Um, but we, we stumbled along the way mm. and it, it took a, it took years to correct and kind of get back where we needed to be. But that learning experience, you know, not that I'd want to do it again, but it yeah. was very valuable. And I'm glad in the end it happened. Yeah. As bizarre as that might sound. No, I know. I know exactly. I guarantee you people who are listening to this also know. I, I once had a customer of ours. We um, we failed. We, we thought we were it wasn't intentionally, but we failed in a, you know, we work with complex mechanical systems in the data center business. Um, sure. Our data centers are. Generally speaking, our small ones are in the three to 400,000 square feet, and most wow. of them now are in the many millions of square feet with hundreds of megawatts of capacity. And I don't know if you've looked out the door, but just the requirement for data is exponential. It's a hockey stick. And so that cloud, social media, e-commerce, software yeah. as a service platform, your podcast, my podcast, live somewhere. <laughs> um, and it's, it's in facilities like ours. But anyway, we, we, we missed on this particular, you know, our methods of procedures and um, something didn't go the way they wanted to. And we had this customer. What was really cool is a great experience for me, not the failure. Nobody ever wants to fail. We're in the 100% up business. Right. And, um, but our customer stuck through it with us. One of the things, I credit my leadership, um, my CEO is still with, with us. I'm one of the original 50. We just went, we went from this little bitty company here in Atlanta to um, public company, pretty good size in our space. We just got bought the other day. Now we've gone back private um, uh, by uh, Blackstone. Big $10 billion deal is a really cool oh, yeah. thing, this cool thing to see. But anyway, the same philosophy and it was, look, we're going to be transparent. I, you know, we're going to go on this investigation of what failed. We're not going to hide anything. And we want you to come in with us. And I remember this customer who they were angry because they had material loss. If you drop somebody's website, if you lose their project, if you whatever, this is real dollars, as you know. Oh, yeah. um, you're, you're backing up to the cloud. You think everything's good. Well, what happens when the cloud becomes fog or mist? You know, it's a problem. So anyway, yep. we had this we had this circumstance, and they stuck through it with us. And the lesson for me coming out on the other side of that, and they're still our customer, on the other side of that was, wow, not, one, I never want to go through that again. Thank God we've never gone through that again. But it was how, how to communicate with somebody to, to take genuine ownership, not to be a victim. That was another cool thing we learned from our executives. Look, we will own up to even more than our share, but we're not going to be flogged to the point where it doesn't do any of us any good. And this customer was so elegant and mature, they weren't interested in that. They were they were serious and there was disappointments and we, we resolved it, but um, it was a great experience. And unless you go through some of those lumps, it's really hard to articulate to people who don't go through. And I'm not saying, you know, they'll find you. You don't need to go find these experiences. But if you can do that, if you can be that transparent with your customers and they'll stick it out with you and you resolve yeah. it in the end, you go from good customers that are always chasing price to loyal people that are looking for value and will stick with you. 100%. Yeah. The, uh, again, the lessons that we've learned, not necessarily from the mistakes, um, but just from the, the, you know, going through the process of, especially with projects, you, you know, you, you know, talk about costing money, right? If it's a hotel that we're building 
and they have an opening date and it's getting pushed back. I mean, it's millions of dollars a day that right. the customer is being cost uh, and, or it's costing the customer. And how do you get out of that, right? There's right. no getting back from there. So it's very important that you also being realistic with our, with our clients, right? It's a lot of times people come with a very unrealistic, um, you know, thought behind how a project is going to get built. I'd like to start this today and I'd like to be in a year from now. And it, the answer is always, it depends, right? Um, depends on how big it is. Uh, a lot of times it's how quickly the, the customer can make a decision. Mm -hmm. um, clients making decisions are, it's a tough, it's a tough road. And that's why we've we've developed other ways of trying to help a client make decisions. Um, and it's not because they're indecisive people. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times they're very decisive, um, but they want to see, you know, is this really the way it's going to work for me? Is this how it's going to ultimately be built? Is this the quality I want? Where is my money being spent? And all of that begins to compound and can and can take much, much longer than a client thinks. But yet the end date never changes. Right. right? So how do you. How do we balance that and, and be realistic with them and not throw up our hands and go, well, you know, you we're doing this over again. Right. You know, add three more weeks. <laughs> right. Yeah. We experience that all the time. It is, um, you know, it's complicated. These are complicated, intra interconnected systems. And in my professional life, I've experienced this so many times. I, ironically... I experienced this in um, I'm thinking of your mom. She's talking about her experiences in remodeling. We've only had one kitchen remodel. <laughs> Never again. In fact, it's probably why I refuse to sell my house today. It's not an elegant house. It's not a big house, but I don't want to go through. But it's we've, we've over the years been making it our house. And now yeah. I've got my my last one. I've been married 34 years, but my youngest daughter, I have all daughters, is 18. And I'm just, she just got her first job and um, she's taken a gap year. And I'm like, baby, if we play our cards right, she could be on a year. This would be, this would be awesome. When they were younger, I was like, no, 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 you stick around to your 26. We'll get you through school debt free. I've got one in college right now is doing great. I've got an older one that's decided to see a little bit of the world, which is cool. And my little baby, I thought, who's my only honor grad out of high school, I thought, oh, she's going to be the one. Now that I've experienced what it's like to have a mostly empty house... Look, I don't want you to live far, but if you could live down the street, that'd be great. But anyway, so we went through this remodel, and we had no experience with, and, and I liked our construction guy, but if I had feedback, which I gave him to offer, and it sounds like you guys are doing this, obviously, much more sophisticated way, it is to help me to understand, because even though I know this in my professional life, I didn't think about this in my personal life, when we make a we've agreed on an idea, We've agreed on a budget. We've agreed on a time frame with a few asterisks, and they're not unrealistic asterisks, not including pandemic interruptions. One, we believe the supply chain looks like this. And to the degree that you go out of, quote unquote, normal, more exotic, mm -hmm. that impacts the supply chain. Yep. So the cost, the availability, the schedule, et cetera. We got that. That was easy for us to understand. What we didn't understand was, oh, when we get to this thing, so we're in the middle of building or making a change, and as you know, unless it's a greenfield on pristine, permitted pasture, 
you're going to uncover stuff. Well, I'm in a 35-year-old house, and we're pushing out a wall, and we're going 12 or 15 feet out. We had no idea the scale of this endeavor in a small home. And so as we, every little change, you know what? Well, we think we want a triangle window there instead of the rectangle that the plan says. No problem. Here's the impact to time. Here's the impact to money. Here's the, and by the way, I have other jobs scheduled. And so as we went through this process, whether it was the flooring we picked out or the counters or whatever, and we made changes from the original design because we didn't, we didn't recognize it or understand it until we saw the light on it. Oh, that doesn't look good. And I know we're going to talk about, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, so don't spoil it, some of the technology, because I actually went into some of the tech we're going to talk about later. And okay. some of my feedback for you was what I got most, fa- first of all, Nora's patience in that tool. So Nora is the guest in there and that I, that you know, the video plays. Our, our <laughs> listeners right now are like, what are you talking about? But just the impact of light in that absolutely blew my mind and I love that. But anyway, so it's this impact and I'm curious as you've, well, before I get ahead of myself, when you left back to your, you're leaving LA, you're up into the Northeast. Did you imagine at that time you're going to own an architect firm? Because if there's another thing I've learned over time, being an owner of something is so much different than even being a trusted senior leader of an organization, but you're responsible for payroll you're responsible for receivables and accountable, at, uh, uh, you know, accounts, receivable accounts, um, uh, whatever else I'm trying to say, right? The, the, the money going out, the money coming in, making sure everybody hits their marks. Did, when Was that always the plan or it just sort of evolved that way? It, it really evolved. I mean, I, I, I never really considered myself a business person. I always considered myself a designer, an architect. Um, and as I began to mature in my in in the in the various firms that I worked at, um, I started to take on side jobs. Many many architects take on side jobs. It's good extra money. Um, if you're aggressive, you know you fit them in at night somehow. I joke with people here that I actually encourage people to take side jobs here, mm-hmm. even though you're. You know, you'd think that that wouldn't be the case, but I always took them and I felt like I did my day job and my night job just as well. The busier I was, the better I, I actually became. And I learned a lot from those side jobs. And that's where I began to learn the business aspect of things, right? That someone recommended me to, you know, renovate their little, you know, studio apartment. And I went in there as the designer and I immediately had to deal with the fact that it was, you know, usually a husband and a wife. And so now I have a client, an actual client of Mm -hmm. mine, and they have an actual budget. It isn't just the client's budget at the big corporate firm that's millions of dollars for something. It's a very finite budget. Right. And they have very specific tastes. And now, now in that little studio apartment, I'm learning everything I need to learn about the business of architecture, how to charge them, when to ask for payment, how to ask for payment. I had never asked for a payment. Someone else at the big firm took care of that. Right. I don't know. You just the money comes in, I guess. I have right. no idea. <laughs> so those little lessons were very, very valuable. And I had a pretty thriving little business going yeah. along the way. And throughout the years, I thought, well, you know, could I go out on my own? Probably, maybe I'll do that. Um, but I always liked doing large work, you know, large scale projects. 
Um, and I felt that if I stuck at doing, you know, the apartment renovations and things like that, that I might forever be in that because they do take a lot of time and you are in a sense a one man show. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, as I worked, at the corporate firm, when the opportunity to come to this firm, Mancini Duffy, happened, it was, well, I actually had a thought, well, maybe I could merge both ideas. Maybe I could kind of make this old firm my firm, in a sense, work my way up there and make it my firm. And that's when I started to understand this idea that, oh, well, there's partners at a firm that one day are going to retire. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what happened here is that the partners wanted to retire and they were looking for someone to step up and buy them out. And that's ultimately what happened here at this firm. Before you, before you moved over, when you were first learning how to ask for money, when to ask for money, how, how to solicit the opinion, how to get both of your customers in the case of a couple on board, did you ever... I'm sure you talked to your colleagues, but did you ever talk to your wife? I'm curious, what did, did, did she have a, you know, did you have sort of back office conversations with how are we going to do this? How, you know, we got to keep cash flowing and, and how, you know, I, I'm asked for this. Do you think this is a, I mean, because you're working with these dynamic personalities. Did she ever give you any feedback? So my, my wife is actually educated as an interior designer. Oh, so. Wow. And she went uh, very early on in her career, probably about the first year of working, she went immediately into sales, mm. into furniture sales. Mm. Uh, it, it suited her much, much, much better. It was, okay. um, you could make your own schedule. The money was better, especially as an interior designer. Sure. And the beauty of my wife is I was always able to bounce ideas off of her. Mm. Uh, especially when it came to things that I wasn't necessarily great at, like um, picking tile for those, you know, those small projects. And because we were in the industry together, it actually worked out quite well. We would go and on the weekends, we didn't have kids at the time. Mm -hmm. So we'd go on the weekends and we'd go to the tile showrooms and I'd pick out tile to ultimately bring to the, to the clients on that side. And it almost became like a little partnership that we had going and, you know, to this day, she knows me. I don't stop. I, I just keep going. I'm always moving forward in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And whether that's as a freelance job that I used to do or on a, a grander scale that we're doing now, she knows that it's, it's forward or nothing here with me and a little bit of a maniac um, <laughs> to, to keep going. But I don't stop. And that's, I don't know, that's, if you stop, it, it becomes boring. So you got to keep moving forward. But she always helped along the way and was always supportive. Yeah. my I, The reason why I ask is there are so many times um, as we were working through our project, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm sure this is the right answer. <laughs> and the person that we were working with w- would say, well, hold on. Let's, let's get the second person in here. And I think he, Daniel knew that because he, he was just experienced. He had done this so many times. Mm-hmm. And I remember being surprised late, uh, you know, a number of times, like, wow, that would never have occurred to me um, to, because my wife has such a different perspective. Or times my wife would say to me, hey, why don't you ask Daniel, our builder, about this? Well, now he, know, he knows that, honey. We don't, you know, obviously he knows that. Just ask, and I'd ask, and he'd say, "You know, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know the answer to that." Just, just that idea. But if I had asked my peers, 
they, they would have they would have thought like me. They would have made the same assumptions that I did. And it was just that her partnership in this particular project. Um, yep. I was surprised at how many times there was such a different perspective, and her intuition was. Um, was spot on in so many ways that I just missed because I didn't have any experience or a perspective like that. Yeah, my wife will tell me that everything I like is always gray, right? And, <laughs> oh and probably that's pretty much how I'm dressed now. So she always is trying to push me towards, you know, you can't do that for them. It's the yeah. same thing. You yeah. got to do it this way. Yeah. <laughs> but do you know the price on this? We can get this in there. We can clear. Yeah, I know. Well, hey, look, so I'm curious. So you... Um, you end up at Mancini Duffy and, you know, you were talking about, you know, it's, it's a, it's an old, um, it's an old firm, uh, meaning I suppose that it's been there, good reputation, been in the city for a very long time. How do you, one of the things we pride around here, pride ourselves on is we, you know, technology is constantly changing. We're constantly innovating about how we how we power these computers. You know, we, we house hundreds of thousands, if not millions of systems. And 25 years ago, were we thinking about how we managed water? Not very much. I mean, we just, you know, it, it, it wasn't that we tried to be sloppy with it. We just didn't think about it that much. Or mm -hmm. how we managed power or whatever. And now sustainability, green energy, how we manage things like that is pretty much in every major decision we make. Um, and what we began tapping into was um, this idea within our organization. We'd call it culture today. We, I don't think we we're that sophisticated in the beginning, but just how do we, how do we, while we go about doing our business, take care of each other? What are we about? What are we for? What are our, what are not just our core competencies, but what do we aspire to? You know, the human, yeah. the human body has to breathe to be alive, but it's not about breathing or oxygen. It's about bigger ideas. That's just a, a mechanism that sustains it. So when you think about coming into an organization like this and and creating culture, how, how did that work for you? And what were some of the things that you were thinking about? Yeah. So when I came here uh, now almost 10 years ago, uh, the, the premise of me coming actually to the previous partner's credit was that I would come in, this young guy, I was, I was under 40 at the time, and would come in and I would reinvent this 100-year-old architecture firm. And I remember thinking, oh, that's cool. This is right. a great opportunity. I'll do that. So there was a little bit of an of a expectation that that was going to occur. And what I really realized very early on is that this firm was a very, and, and to their credit, very successful, but very buttoned up. And, and almost laser focused to a fault kind of firm. Um, it was very traditional in the way that um, there was, you know, the partnership structure. Everyone worked under the partners and there were the layers, right? But knowing kind of where I came from and where the industry was headed and where the, my colleagues that were, you know, younger than me, and how they like to work, that millennial generation, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're not interested in that hierarchy. And I always, that, and, and many of the reasons, one of the main reasons why I left the firm I was at before, I was very happy there. I did very well there. I still am very good friends with them. I love a lot of them to death. They're a competitor, but, you know, a friendly competitor. Mm -hmm. I always get excited. If, if they beat me, I'm happy with it because, I, you know, they deserve it kind of thing. Um, 
but they, you know, again, they were also very structured. And for me to have my ideas known and shown and valued, it would have taken, you know, maybe decades to get to that point. Mm. And if that's how I'm feeling as, you know, the Gen Xer, then the millennials are certainly feeling that for sure. You know, and this in the world of architecture, that that barrier has been broken down a bit. So when I came in, the idea was, well, let's hear what everybody has to say. You know, what are some of the things that we can do? And I also didn't want to be traditional as a traditional architecture firm. I, I wanted to look at technology. I've always been into technology. I wanted to see where technology would help uh, the profession, help the firm specifically, but then the bigger profession as a whole. When you think of you know, architects use computers, right? For the most part, um, we don't hand draft anymore. But the reality is, is that we really didn't change much from moving to computers in the last 30 years. It's only until very recently that we've actually started to change the way that we interact with the data mm. as part of what we're building, right? Or part of what we're designing. The AutoCAD, I'm sure you've heard that yep, expression. We use it. Mm. AutoCAD is essentially a mimicking of hand drawing. I mean, it's, it is exactly that. It's all about lines and those lines represent things, but enter in a new program called Revit or building information modeling. That's a very different way of working. And so I really promoted that the minute I walked in the door that this firm had to be what was called a BIM firm. So that means that in this software now, you're not drawing a two lines that represent a window or a wall. The thing that you're drawing in the computer knows it's a wall, knows it's a window. It has properties. It could even be linked to a very specific manufacturer or a glass type, or if it's a LEED certified project, what type of glass is that that is LEED certified and how do I change the material properties of that? How does it ultimately affect the insulation and the assembly of the building? And so there's a lot of data in those, in those models. And so we were, so I came in and said, well, we're, we're not going to do the, the, basically the mimicking of hand drawing. We're going to really emphasize BIM and start connecting all of these processes together and having smart drawings. Mm -hmm. And now it, it really has become more of an industry standard. I think a lot of the, the, the larger firms uh, use it now. Um, but, but for the most part, you know, it's, it took that and I, it began to get the younger generation here excited. You know, they were learning some of it in school um, and, and they were perfect, you know, absolutely willing to sit down and put in the extra effort that it took to take this firm from a more traditional, let's call it technical drawing to now a very, very advanced way of delivering projects. So that was sort of the initial you know, change that occurred mm -hmm. and then supporting the people. Right. So my whole thing was, you know, Hey, I had a million ideas. Nobody was listening. So I turned that on its head and I want to hear everybody's idea and, you know, really sitting down and understanding why architects are, and designers are very passionate people. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ideas there. And some of them have absolutely nothing to do with architecture or buildings or interiors. Um, but they're, very, very interesting ideas. Mm. And so how do we begin to support people, even if it doesn't have anything to do with our core business? And so as that began to evolve, 
everyone became excited about that. We established something called the Design Lab here, which is basically an uh, um, R&D room Mm -hmm. um, with several different programmers that are associated with it. And we started developing software, things that could help us you know, with our clients, get them to those decision points that we talked about. You know, we, I had someone here that uh, worked on a, an airport lounge and turned around and said, hey, you know, I really like working on airports. And I said, okay. And he said, I think we could have a practice area here, young guy. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's awesome. You know, you should lead it. And he said, okay, I'm happy to lead it. Right. And we established an airport, an aviation practice around, you know, this person who to this point is doing aviation projects, which is just amazing. We had someone else come and say they, you know, they had another idea for almost a tangential business in terms of decorating. And, uh, you know, when when a client comes in and we're doing all this, this wonderful interior design and we leave. You know, they're kind of stuck with, well, what do I put on that shelf? How do I, you know, uh, are there plants I should put here? So their idea, this the two interior designers were, well, we can offer that service. And that was another thing where we said, that's great. Let's establish that. So we started that as a separate business. And that business, you know, thrives to this day and continues on and and, and now develops its own projects. And so all everyone knows here, if you've got an idea, this firm is willing to listen to you. And that's the most important cultural shift, I think, that we made, that I'm here to talk to, any of the partners are here to, to talk to, and we're here to support you. If it's an, if it's an idea and you're passionate about it, we are, we're ready to go. We have an idea about robots. I have one guy that's all over my case about how we need to have a robot in the office. And we keep telling him, what are you going to do with this robot? Because this thing isn't cheap. Right. And he's, I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet, but I know it's going to be important. Okay, so we got to get a little bit more information, but we're ready to go when you, when you are. So, so that robot will be coming our way. It's um, and I know some robot people. Um, <laughs> it's what's really cool about that is when you started off the conversation, of, you know, saying, "Hey, look, coming from where I came from, there's these tools that I believe that are going to help accelerate," and that's that idea is as old as there's been tools, right? Somebody showed mm-hmm. up tapping the lead architect on the Sphinx saying, hey, I got a tool, you know, I've got this new carving. T- We've done this for 3,000 years. We're not going to, right? And, there's, and so they go start their own thing. But what's really cool is when you talk about, look, we're, we're creating, this, creating this incubation thing where um, – we are architects. It's what we do, of course. And yet what we really are are people that express themselves through this way. We want to serve other human beings and help them flourish. We want to serve each other. You know, here's we want to serve the, the, the greater area. And I'm not trying to be too uh, sentimental about it, but I've recently been exposed. I had a guest on not long ago who's in the software application business. And we didn't talk about software applications at all. We talked about this idea that he had of um, conscious capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what, how many understand that? Let's just talk about that philosophy. And his conversation, I'm still chewing on it, was how do we create value and bring um, uh, nobility and opportunity and these other things, but through economics, 
We absolutely, a company needs to be profitable. It cannot survive if it's not profitable. However, how do you have this balance without sounding like you're an idiot of it's not all about profit. It has to be profitable. But if I can pour into my employees like this, my employees will pour into our customers and into each other like this and will create a culture um, that looks like this. And the organization that he's with um, down in uh, Houston, I believe, is where he's based out of, has been voted one of the top 10 places for the last 15 years to work at yeah. in Houston, period, not just in their industry, but in the city, surviving you know, price of oil changes, surviving all these various things because they have that idea. And it sounds like you guys are similar in that, yes, we're architects, but what we're really about is this big idea. And how do we continuously renew without learn, losing our mission? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We, you know, the, the technology has given us the ability to, as you said, it's, it's, it's really, it's express ourselves, but also really communicate our vision to the client. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we use a lot of, of VR and AR mm -hmm. and those things like, you know, you talked about with renovating your, your kitchen, right? I mean, it, it can be boiled down to very simple terms like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what is the space going to look like before I build it? You know, how is it going to, how am I going to feel in that space? There's no drawing that an architect can do. There's no description that we can do that can tell you what it's going to feel like in a space. But with the use of, of VR, you, we really can and can give an emotion to a space, right? Um, there's no lying. And I will say that, you know, part of the, the use of the computer in the architectural world is we could fake a lot of things, right? So, you know, before there was the AR VR side, there were, there are architectural renderings, right? And, and even from the early watercolors that you'd see, watercolors faked everything at that point. I mean, they, you know, they, they would draw kind of anything they felt because there was that, that stroke of the, of the paintbrush could, you know, could emote something totally different and they give you, it's the truly the artist rendering, right. but even a computer rendering can't, we can fake. We had one client that said, I want to see, uh, we're doing an apartment building. I want to see the statue of Liberty in every single view that you put. So, I mean, according to the, the renderings that we did, you know, the Statue of Liberty was, you know, in everybody's view, no matter which way they were facing, right. north, east, south, or west. So you could fake that kind of thing. But in the VR system, and especially the way that we're doing it, which is a direct relationship. So as we're working in the computer on the, on the BIM model, it's creating it, the software is creating its own VR experience for the client directly. And that can be with the headset, or that could be like what you referred to before as with Nora kind of running around the, right. the avatar version. So you don't have to have the headset on. We could do it as more of a virtual meeting. And it's a very powerful tool because now we're actually talking about everyone seeing the same thing. Mm. With those architectural renderings before, everyone was seeing whatever they kind of wanted to see. And so there's no cheating anymore in this. And it really moves the process along a lot faster but then also gives us the ability to take a step back and develop the design a little bit more, right? Because now we've, all right, now we got some real feedback from the client and, oh, that's interesting. We didn't know that that's the way this client thought about this space or this building or the approach to the building or the, you know, the, the, the functionality of it. Hmm. So now give us a little bit of time now that we know that 
we're going to do a few more options for you and show you, we're going to react to what you are reacting to. And you're just, you're, you're moving that process along um, much more graciously. And everyone's, I tell you, every client that we've done this with now for the last couple of years couldn't be happier in terms of the result. When they're in their space and it's built at the end, they say, yep, this is exactly what I was looking for. For the most part, there's always yeah. there's always little things. I know what there. you mean. Look, before we dive into more details, because I'm really curious to talk about my experience. And um, uh, this was uh, your firm had published um, on YouTube sort of an example of what it's like to use this. Tying it to culture, when you talked about your lab, in our world, we have a... Um, the office of our CTO is called Office of the CTO Innovation Lab. It's a similar idea, which is how do we experiment in our world with machine learning, artificial intelligence, um, analytics? So we have big business information systems where we have all, you know t- million, literally tens of millions of data points of everything from generators and valve flows and water and bandwidth and connectivity and computers and just on and on and on. And it all feeds a big giant data lake. So this is all this data. What, what do you do with all of this data? And over time, coming out of that lab, we've been able to structure it, organize it, and get it into systems. And then ultimately, now five years in, seven years in, we've published it to our clients. They can get on their phone. They can get anywhere. And now they're able to do business analytics. And they're able to, we have virtual reality. So when we say VR, that's what we're talking about is virtual reality or augmented reality. I can walk around in real time live in our in their spaces and do these other things. Where it really resonates as it relates to our culture is we have a lot of um, tech heads, some young at heart and some very young that love to get into that lab. One, they love the fact that we have a lab. Two, they love that they can get in there and they can experiment. They can bring ideas to our office of the CTO, maybe that robot that you were talking about. But, hey, here's ideas that we want to experiment with um, and, and get it either into the lab or kind of incubate it. What I think is remarkable, I'm a technologist in the technology business. You're describing this to me. And you're in, and I mean no disrespect whatsoever. Truly, I don't. I think this is what's remarkable about this conversation is I would have loved to have been sitting there in the room with your three or four or eight other partners saying, you know what this place needs? We need an innovation lab. <laughs> Wait a minute. We're a small company in a highly competitive world that we've got to make sure we're hitting payroll. And we're not, not just this quarter, but we're looking eight quarters out. And we've got all these other things. And say that again. What do you want to do? I want an innovation lab and I want us to create our own software and our own tools. So can you, how did that conversation go? And I know we're on this side of it, which is really yep. cool because now you got a bunch of people going, oh, okay, I, I got it. But, but what was that like? And, and what's been the value, Not because we're going to get into the, what the tool does specifically, but just as you're talking to your partners and ultimately your customers, I, you know, what was that journey like? I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, early on, because it was more of an idea, it, it took a little while to manifest itself, right? And it really wasn't until I um, essentially bought the firm from the, from the, the previous generation that we really began to solidify the idea. And I will say that we, you know, again, in full transparency, 
I don't know much about business, or at least I didn't back right. then. And I, someone had said to me, you know, you should hire a business coach. <clears throat> and I said, okay, we, I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing what a business coach brings. And so we hired a business coach and he did a strategic planning with us. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and this is where I threw out the idea that, you know, we, I want to have this, this R&D lab. I want to make it about, you know, in, in that particular time, it was about 3D printing uh, a little bit of VR, and it had some other, uh, you know, agenda items essentially that we wanted to accomplish in there. And the business coach did a very smart thing. He said, "Okay, well, why don't we design a business plan around this lab?" And so we had, you know, okay, well, these are the things that we do: we build residential buildings, we build office buildings, we do office interiors. Oh, and now there's another column here for design lab. And what does the design lab do? And so in all those other categories, it was, well, we want X amount of revenue in this market sector, X amount of revenue in this market sector. And when it came to the lab, we decided that we wanted X amount of revenue to come from that lab. Hmm. And we gave it, we we said by the year 2020, it had to make a million dollars on its own. We had no idea what that meant, not a clue. But it seemed like a good goal. And, 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 and now looking back, it did kind of get us all in line. Like, okay, this is, listen, it's, it's, it's not exactly what we do, but it is along those lines. And that's when we, be able to tr- we, we began to treat it like another part of the business as, as instead of a pet project that probably would never get off the ground. So we had regular meetings and agendas and we, we made sure that we were following through and we kept lists of all of these crazy things that we were going to accomplish. And little by little, it really began to solidify itself into what it became and very clear as to where the need for the designers here in the firm were, what our clients' needs were. And sure enough, we were able to build that that practice up to where it was able to generate its own revenue in a sense. And now it's become integral into what we do, right? It, it become, we took it to the next level where it was no longer about this room that we experiment in technologies. It's actually our entire process. Hmm. So when I've, I've told this story before, um, Ralph Mancini, who is the, the founder of the firm, used to always say, you know, you're going to go up against, because we're, we're a big firm, mm-hmm. but we're under 100 people. We go up against other firms that are thousands of people, mm-hmm. big, big firms. And you're, you're once you're over about 30 people or so in the world of architecture, you're considered a big firm. Mm-hmm. So you're competing against all these other firms. And Ralph Mancini used to always say, I don't care what you have to do, but you have to differentiate yourself when you get to the table. And if you have to show up naked, then show up naked, mm-hmm. no matter what. And so I, oh, that always stuck out to me. Well, what is it that we do that's different? Ah, oh, we're young, we're cool, we do good design. Eh, kind of everybody else could say that too. But this technology, this lab, this, this idea became our process. And so now when we go into a pitch, we say, we actually do do it differently. There's no one that does it this way. This is how we take you through this process with the use of this technology, with the use of, of, of a little bit of artificial intelligence and scripting, and, and all of this rolls up into a very unique design experience for that client. 
and clients typically get it at that point and understand it. And so I'm not the giant firm that could throw a book this thick down of all the experience they have building K through 12 schools, but I can go in and say, hey, see these three or four schools we did? We did it in this process. Look how great they turned out. By the way, would you like to speak to you know, all of the people that run those schools to talk about this process and how it was the best process they've ever been through. And boom, you know, people love that and, and we're able to get to win more jobs that way. I love that story because it so parallels my experience with n- not dissimilar. While we are by, by revenue considered one of the larger in our industry, we, you know, it's been, we grew up as a little bitty company now 17 years in, and one of the things that we discovered was once people are, we, you know, we have demonstrated our ability to provide operational excellence. The economics have to work. The, the operational excellence has to be there. The business terms, but that's all sort of table stakes, right? You can't, you're not going to have an, you're not invited to the table if you can't demonstrate that. Where, how you win opportunities, we discovered is, what are you for? How are you going to help me? How are we going to, are you easy to do business with? And if we can cast a vision, and that what's really interesting about what you're saying, Christian, is it seems to me, as I'm listening to you, we're going to build you something that is um, uh, beautiful or elegant or efficient. It's going to accomplish these things. But we're going to make the experience of you working with us like this and let us show you how. And we're going to use technology. We're not afraid of technology. We're going to bring technology into it without losing the art of architecture. We're going to bring this technology alongside. And then we're going to immerse you in it. We're going to drop you in it. And without having to describe all the all of the, you know, nobody describes what's going on on their smartphone. You just push the button and you use it and you do your thing. They don't care what the algorithm is from Netflix. They don't care what the, mm-hmm. they just, you want to be able to see stranger things from your kid's soccer field at four o'clock in the afternoon. This, I want to do it. And I love that how you've described that. Um, so when, when you, when you go back to the firm or when you work with your customers, how, how is it that, oh, you know, um, how, how do you how do you get them to get on board with this idea of sort of this tech first innovation? You know, you really need to, um, you know, here's besides demonstrating it through the tool belt, which is this to, this program that you've built. And now, if I remember correctly, it's its own business. Is it standalone? I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how do you get them to buy into before they've experienced it without, you know? not being skeptical, like how do they buy into it? Or is that not so much a resistance anymore? It's not a resistance anymore. Early on, it was. A lot of the, a lot of the time, the, the, the question we would get was, that's pretty cool. How much extra does it cost? Yeah, sure. Right. And what I would always say to people was, and it wasn't true in the beginning, and now it is definitely true, is that, well, it's actually cheaper. And if done correctly, it is cheap <clears throat> because – it's a lot easier and a lot cheaper to change things on in drawings and in renderings than it is to when you're looking at it built and you want to change it. Right. We can change anything on paper, um, but it's difficult once it's built to make changes. 
So if you go in with that initial philosophy, then sort of selling this as it's as a service early on makes a lot of sense. But the reality is because now everyone is trained in the way we do this process, it is the process. Mm. We don't know how to do the traditional process. I, I We wouldn't know how to do it anymore, <laughs> almost giving you just line drawings. It just wouldn't make any sense. Um, we, we need to immerse you in it. And we're going to do that almost if whether you like it or not. Right. And, and, and we're going to save you money in the end. And we're going to save ourselves time and you're going to get a better product. And early on, that was a little bit harder of a sell. But now, again, I, I can point to, you know, hundreds of clients that have gone through this process and they know it. They, they know that this is the way of going. And so we've, it's become our, our, our way, the Mancini way of, of doing design. When I when I was watching the tool um, with Nora the Avatar, I imagined as there's a there's a scene in there where they're moving chairs around in the um, in a restaurant, and what I imagined was so one of the consequences of when we did our remodel, where we put the refrigerator, it fits, but it's not elegant in the <laughs> walk path. Now the measurements are correct, but we didn't imagine how we were going to use the room once it all changed. We, we, re, we were imagining it the way that it worked before it all changed. The colors are good. We don't have any complaints about the color. Um, we don't have any complaints about a lot of the aesthetic. But in terms of the ergonomics, it technically, they did nothing wrong. Our designer did nothing wrong in laying things out. But between our ability to communicate and, and, and the, the previous experiences, looking at the tool that you guys have designed to be able to to just drop us in there and walk around, easily walk around and move around and say, okay, I'm opening these doors. How are we imagining we're getting to the um, the the back door to the, uh, uh, the, I forget the room where you take off your shoes and, you know, <laughs> make a mess and whatever. And how are we going to do that? And what does that look like? It, I'm sure it, it's available to some of the uh, groups now, but in our, when we did this a few years ago, it wasn't readily available. At least they didn't bring it to our attention. And then that was one. I thought, wow, you can really see how things move. And then the second was the lighting. In particular, I loved how as the you simulated, the computer simulated the light moving throughout the course of a day, we for sure would have put a window in a different <laughs> spot because there's a particular... I feel like we're in the Lord of the Rings where they're trying to get the light to shine in on the keyhole. <laughs> Where I sit on my couch at a certain time of the day, it comes through and drills me in the <laughs> head. To have that experience is, uh, regardless of the efficiency you gain in, in doing this, um, is, is worth whatever value. You know, the value that comes out of that is, uh, is worth it for sure. Yeah, where it really clicked, I, I will say that the, sort of the light bulb moment was we do a lot of restaurants. And we had actually brought the owner of a restaurant in to kind of walk his space virtually. And he said to us, did you build the kitchen? And we said, no, we didn't, we didn't build the kitchen. And he said, could you build the kitchen? I'd like to have my head chef come in. I said, okay. So we build the kitchen. The head chef comes in, you know, the next week. Right. And the head chef picked up the, the controllers. We've simplified the controllers. 
And that's where the idea of the tool belt came in. And the idea is you're in virtual reality, you look <clears> down and you see a series of tools around a belt. Right. And, you know, you can select, move, you know, add notes, change materials, change the lighting, things like that. He very quickly picked it up and he began to work the kitchen, literally as though he was in the kitchen cooking. And you had to see this guy. I mean, he was going through here. And then we said, well, how do I move this? And so he picked the stove up and he moved it to the other side. How do I move that? The dishwashing equipment, all those dumb racks that all that, uh, all the glassware goes in that they usually stack up high. Yeah. It's too high. How, how is anyone going to reach this? You know, this is way too high or his, the, the best one was he wanted to be able to see through the kitchen and he looked down and he's kind of crouching around and he said, all of these, uh, all of these hoods are too low. They need to go up a little bit just by six inches. There's no drawing we could ever do that would give that effect because no matter what you're looking at a piece of paper, it, it's never going to give him the ability to see through where he wanted to see from one side of the kitchen to the other side and how that was important to him. And that's really where it clicked for us is, Oh, wait a minute. This is more than just a visual tool. We can actually design in this thing too. We developed something called actually specifically for him called the kitchen sandbox. Hmm. So it's all their kitchen equipment. And they come in and they start moving that kitchen equipment around kind of wherever location they're going to be. And they build their own kitchen, essentially. And then it's done. And then we we then figure the rest out, you know, and make sure it's by code and, and right. all of those things. But it's a, it's a very powerful tool. It really is. So if you're an office building full of architects that are realizing their best light life through aviation lounges and <laughs> all these other things, how do you, I mean, do you have your own software development group? Do you have, um, I, I guess what I'm trying to imagine is, so when you came into the firm and you, hey, look, I know there are tools, I know there's a way we can do this better, more efficiently, have these better experiences, but technology changes. There, there are things that are constantly evolving that you may not be aware of as a, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get these things done in my life. And so there's whole industry out there that's growing. How do you vet and stay not just improving the tools that you have, but rolling in new tools and mm-hmm. um, you know continuously improving what you've got. How do you guys think through that? So the way it started was one of our one of the guys that works here, Michael Kipfer, really kind of stepped up as becoming the leader of the lab. Let's okay. call it. And Michael, um, brilliant, brilliant guy, great architect, great designer but very, very tech focused. Mm. And um, he went to the University of Pennsylvania for graduate school and he had met another guy there, uh, Jeff Anderson. Jeff is actually a professor at Pratt Mm. and at UPenn. Um, And Jeff is also works in our lab full time. So he's a professor and uh, and, uh, one of our employees. And Jeff has been able to, because he's actually, he is teaching digital design, uh, visual fabrication, VR, AR. Uh, Jeff's really at the forefront of a lot of the visual technologies in the various architecture schools. We've been able to recruit, you know, some of his graduates along mm. the way. And so everyone that works in our, in our lab is a architect by training, but really wants to be more on the programming and developer side. And so that's how we've been able to stay current with what's going on. Now, you know, 
there's obviously other, you know, there's the Googles and that level of programmer mm-hmm. um, that, that we're probably not getting access to, but it is part of our plan to, you know, the, the next level for us is to take this beyond just the, just our world and develop it further. So we're in the process of, you know, that's why we spun it off as its own company, essentially trying to raise money so that we can support this in, you know, the sort of the, the version two mm-hmm. of, of our tool belt and really take it to the, to the next level. When you said you're, um, I, as you're talking about this, I'm wondering how do you maintain the intimacy of the culture that you're talking about? I mean, I, you said you're a large company, so anybody over 30, um, or, <laughs> you know, um, uh, not, not any person in their age, but uh, right. you know, once you assemble, you know, a certain number of uh, folks, I, I, do you, are you, how do you manage, look, we need, we want to be able to accomplish a certain number of projects coming in. We want to create a certain lifestyle for the people that are here in whatever their role is. How do you balance that and keep the intimacy so that it feels like this cool thing, um, that you guys are making without it too big where you yep. lose the intimacy or too small, where you're scrambling and you lose work-life balance. Exactly. That that is a, that is a it's a challenge. And and at one point, we were over a hundred people, and mm. the firm, for my taste, got a little too big. Mm. Um, and and you know, I I treat it like a family, for good or for bad. Mm-hmm. I want to know everybody here. I want to know what's important to them, and so do my partners. And work life balance is extremely important, especially for architects, because in an architect's world. There's, it's never, you're never done. There's mm-hmm. always more. There's always another drawing you can do. There's always more detail you can do. There's always another option you can think of. You're never done. And so you've got to find that balance of when, when are we ready to present? When are we ready to go to construction? When are we ready to do all of these things? So it's a, it's a tough balance. So keeping it around the, you know, the 85 to 90 person um, capacity that we're at now seems to feel about right carving out the right amount of time for things like the initiatives at the lab, what's new, you know, talking to people about what are your ideas. We do a lot of, and actually COVID helped us in this sense. Um, we did, we're, culturally, we're not only just the technology in the lab and the market sectors, but we wanted to make it a fun place to work. So we had a lot of parties, we have beer on tap, you know, it's like that kind of thing. And it's a fun place to work. Mm-hmm. And everybody hangs out and goes out. And that's a typical New York City kind of, of job. And when COVID happened, you know, that's where I was very worried about the culture. How are we going to maintain it? You know, all of a sudden we went from being in New York City every day to being home and looking at each other on screens. And, and what we did was we adapted to uh, twice a week we had firm Zoom calls, all in Zoom calls, and everyone turned on their cameras. The best, and and sometimes it was, we had an announcement to make, or we talked about whatever it might be, but the best times through all of those months of COVID were when I always made it where I was going to be the last to hang up, and everyone kind of began to drop off, and we would have maybe six or eight people left on there. And people would be home, maybe they'd go grab a beer or something. And those intimate conversations were the kind of conversations that new ideas popped out of, mm-hmm. right? The idea for the lab of, well, you know, if people can't go into the lab, how do we make it a multiplayer version of itself? Other people, I wish, 
someone had an idea about how to create a self-driving lawnmower. And, a, and, and there are some that exist, but this guy had a totally out there idea, you know, un, totally unrelated, but it led us down a path to something else. And mm. those little conversations are really what it's all about. That's where the fresh new things come from, just bouncing ideas off of one another. I recorded all those meetings which is kind of funny to the very end. <laughs> I love I love the heart of that. And I, I'm really encouraged because I'm beginning to meet more and more organizations. I think that I mean, there's so many lumpy news stories out there about things that aren't going well. I love to hear um, when the CEO or the executive leadership of an organization is, look, here's how we're in on... Um, Helping, helping ourselves, helping other human beings, and um, you know, being practical, practical-minded. We've got to be successful as an organization. We expect excellence, and we expect you to do your job, and um, you know, do these other things. But there's, there's, um, it's almost in a weird way when you've, when you make it this simple, it gives you a lot of freedom on how. What are we about? We're for these very simple things. And that gives us freedom now to be fully express ourselves in here, um, and that's what it sounds like you're you're talking about. But it's a segue, <laughs> so I feel like this conversation for the last hour and fifteen, hour and twenty minutes has been perfect, all the way up to February fifteenth, twenty twenty. And and as you look at a post COVID world, post pandemic world in particular there in the metropolitan area where you're at, which was pretty much ground zero for most of us about how COVID rolled into the United States. And, you know, it's so easy to look back now and say, well, they did this wrong and that nobody knew. Give us some grace. Nobody knew. We we didn't know what was going to happen. Exactly. So so that all aside, I am curious because – even here in our organization where I'm sitting now, we work uh, the same number of hours, but we are only in our office part of the time. I'm in an, a studio that I uh, built here at my um, office, but um, and all of the employees come and go throughout the week, but they're not here five days a week. They're here a few days a week, and we are completely reimagining, do we need this much space? What's the space going to be used for? In fact, I literally across the hall, just before we came on air to record this, we're building out essentially a. Uh, remember the old uh, Star Trek show where they'd walk in, you know, onto the, a blank green screen platform, computer, put me in Hawaii or whatever. They're right. building that across the hall for our e learning, where before we would bring people, hundreds of people from around the country in quarterly to go through. We have a lot of training programs. We have a lot of cultural things. There are things that, um, and we've perfected over the last 17 years how to do it efficiently. But people don't want to travel. They have health risks. There's complications from state to state. It's just not easy. And yet, we want to maintain that culture. We want to maintain that training. And I'm curious, in your world, as you are imagining a post-pandemic world as um, somebody that this is, you know, this public commercial space is part, if not essential, to at the end of the day, you guys are architects. What does that look like? How are you reimagining it? Yeah, so so there's a lot there to, to unpack, right? I, I mean, for a from my perspective, right, as the as an architect that does, you know, we do we do everything from hotels to restaurants, 
But a lot of what we do, because it's New York City, is corporate interiors. And that could mean anything, right? That can mean JP Morgan, Chase, KPMG, it can mean Peloton, we did their headquarters. You know, so we're all over the map in terms of what corporate means, right? right? Um, and as the pandemic happened, you know, I would watch every day, are people ever going to go back to an office? Are people ever going to go back to a city? So obviously I'm in panic mode for many, many months. <laughs> and, you know, this idea that nobody's ever going to go back to an office ever again because they don't need to was pretty early on, you know, the seemed like that was going to be what it was. Everyone could do virtual. But knowing that you can't really have a culture, a lot of people's firm cultures, just like ours, could co- could exist in the in the COVID world virtually because we all knew each other. Right. We all we all had friendships, you know, and we did hire people during COVID, and that was tough, like getting them on screen and introducing them, and you know, beyond that, I mean, what are they going to say? Right. You know? So I don't know how you ultimately build a culture completely virtually. Um, I'm sure it's possible, but I don't know if it's really something that's even a worthy exercise. But what it comes down to is, I mean, people work for people work for many different reasons, right? We always say this: Why do you come to work, right? And you you come to work. Some people come for money. Some people come for you know their career or making some sort of difference. Some people come to be social and their whole social life depends on the working environment and the office world. And so right now for us as corporate interior designers, it's actually kind of exciting because there's so much unknown. Mm. Um, You can actually speak to the client, understand what they're about, and now design an office space that speaks to them and their culture where beforehand, everyone wanted to know what was the latest thing? What was the latest trend? What was Google doing? What was, you know, what is the law firm, the other law firm that you just finished doing? What's that other accounting firm doing? I should do what they do. Mm. But right now we're at a point where it doesn't matter what they do because it only matters what you do. Mm. And so now let's try and figure out what that is for you. What does that mean? And there's a lot of different aspects of it, right? There is the, um, there are some clients that want to go with what they call hub and spoke, right? That there would be a, an experience center, let's call it. We've got one right now that we're doing a consumer products uh, client. They want to have a New York city, you know, amazing, like no other space that they're going to bring their clients. They're going to have conferencing at, it's going to be, you know, this catering place. It's going to be just this, you're going to go there and it's going to be just a great day. The employees, there will be some quiet space for employees to work if they happen to be there for multiple days, but the rest of the time they're going to invest their money in suburban real estate and sort of smaller offices in other areas where you come a few days a week and work and you work a few days from home. So that that's kind of one model. I'm sure there's going to be CEOs that turn around after this is all said and done and say, the work from home is over. Thank you very much. Everybody needs to come back into the office. Mm. I'm sure that'll happen. I think that'll be a little bit rare, at least in the beginning. But to me, the interesting part is if you look back of 25 years of office and office design, you have sort of the 
you have the cubes. Everybody knows the cubes, you know, office space, that movie, one of the greatest I just, movies ever. I just shuddered, just FYI. <laughs> I spent too much time in cube time. Yes. So there's the cubes and then there's sort of the, the, the <laughs> private offices around the perimeter. And what began to happen is people started turning that around, right? We started putting the offices on the interior, moving taking the cubes away and giving more open desking along the perimeter of the office so that the light comes in, people feel more, more alive, more connected to the outside. They're not, you know, in these four walls where they can't see any daylight for, for the entire day that they're there. And that kind of, that evolved, right? And then work from home actually be, began probably about 10 years ago. There were companies that were, do work, were doing working from home. But then you enter in Google, and Google really flipped that office model on its head. And it became all about being in the office for that generation, that millennial generation that really was very city bound until COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, Google was in every major city or is still in every major city. And that the, the Googlers, as they called them, you know, they every, everything was in there. I don't know if you've ever been to a Google office, but they... You know, they have a celebrity chef that comes once a week and they have dining facilities and you name it. It's all there from naps to games to uh, we had done a, a Google project where everyone actually got to build their own desk out of Tinker Toys, essentially. Right. I mean, you name it. They did it just to make the office this fun place that everyone could identify with but also would be there all the time. That mm-hmm. was the goal. Like if I could get my employees to be in the office 24 seven, then they would be X amount more productive and I would get all these great things. So now COVID happens and it really turns that on its head. Mm-hmm. And now you're seeing, you know, these companies, I, I think, I think the millennials, a lot of them moved out of the cities, um, New York city. I, you know, despite what you hear on the news, New York city is actually pretty thriving right now. Yeah. Um, which is great news. Things are beginning to fill up. But from an office point of view, not much is changing. I will say we're still building the same amount of office space. It's just that people aren't using it in the same capacity that they were. So you've got the hub and spoke. You've got the CEOs are going to demand everyone come in. And then you have everybody else who's saying, well, I don't quite know. I know the office is important, but let's do this. Let's make enough room for everybody, maybe take a little bit of less space. Uh, and let's have everybody work from home two days a week, at least. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're seeing amongst most of our clients is three days in the office, two days at home. And that seems to be a good variety or a good balance for people. I think commuting is a problem. I think if you really were to kind of back up big picture, we really do have to invest in infrastructure and the way people move around from the suburbs to the cities because it's it's difficult. I mean, the the train is the train. It's old and it's cranky and it doesn't and it's not on time. And the stations that you go into are are horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, the roads are terrible right now. People don't want to take the train, so they drive. So driving in is is becoming more and more difficult. And so I think if we were to really truly in, invest in our infrastructure, um, we would make that commute, I think, a lot more palatable for people. And you'd see a return to office with less resistance 
you'd see happier people. I think in the end, if it only took you 45 minutes to get to work as opposed to an hour and 45 minutes. Um, so I don't really know where it ultimately is going to shake out, but I think there's a balance somewhere in there that we're going to see. The office is not dead, so that's good news for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's certainly not going to be the same that, yeah. it, that it was before, before COVID, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I'm really curious to see what it becomes. It's um, we've I've hosted a lot of CIOs um, who are generally more focused on the tech in for the company and and the tech people as opposed to a CTO, which in general is the products we're putting out and how we're competing in the marketplace. And that w- w- where you started with your conversation has been the conversation I've had so many times with them and nobody, we're not sure yet, which is this, the, we have an amazing, I love the culture at our organization. We have our lumps and not always do the teams within the org, um, uh, you know, kind of like in a, a football team, the offense and the defense don't always get along, but within the defense, those folks get along and within the <laughs> offense, right? Who cares about special teams? They're all kind of crazy anyway. But it, but no seriousness, it is, we built that culture though by being in the office and we will have, we have what's called people rallies. We have these big things, but it's almost like when you go to a church, you know, you sit there in the church or in any other, uh, a lecture forum at a college and you're, you're, you're in these rows and you can, you know, information can be passed to you in the row from the lectern, from the, from the, from that pastor or from that, um, professor or whatever. But what, when you really learn is when you get together in your circles, when you get together in your, um, you know, for bar mitzvah or for communion or for whatever, or, or, or your lab, you know, in chemistry, whatever it is, when you're there with the professor and with your students and you're kind of getting your, or in your office, you know, that drive-by meeting where someone can just walk by your door and you can, look, I know the work they're turning in, but some doesn't look right with so-and-so, or they're here earlier, they're there late, and your spidey sense kicks off, and you get that intuition, or they're not showing up for that. Whatever it is, you, you build community, and human beings, I believe, the overwhelming majority of us, are meant for community. We thrive yeah. when we're able to integrate um, like that. And that's what I love about the experiment of America, is we have opportunities for individual performance, and community. When yeah. it's community only, it's just the hive. That's not the best version of ourselves. When it's no hive, only individ- rugged individualists, well, there's some lumpy parts in our community, in our culture that that doesn't work either. People can be exploited. It's these things. And so where that works in work, where most you know, of our waking hours, most days of the week, we're at work with each other and serving each other, I don't know what that looks like or how we overcome that, but it feels like to not get together in person with some regularity is not the right answer. And I know so many people, in particular tech people, under the age of 35, I can't confirm that I have a good personal experience with a company like Google in my data centers because we have NDAs. But let's just say most of the largest organizations that are on the internet are in data centers like ours. And so we have a lot of experience with those kinds of organizations. And, and you know, where they, um, where they thrive the most is when these like-minded people get together and they genuinely feel like we're solving problems, we're helping, we're reacting. 
And you don't do that very well virtually only. So I'm, I, I would just love to see how that's going to inform your business as you get. And I love the way that you put that. Look, here's opportunity for us. We don't know what it's going to look like. We believe these things. Human beings need to be in a community. People under a certain age or, or period, whether it's for commuting or whatever, they want to relieve the pressure of force going to the office. So how these two things balance, build culture. The culture that we're living on, we built in proximity to each other. So we're able to maintain it for how long, we don't know. But anyway, I know that's a lot of words, but it's this, we're sort of all trying to evaluate it and figure it out. I think a hardline stance of, um, in my experience of the conversations I'm having, we must go and do like we did pre-COVID probably is not the best answer in most circumstances. Yeah, and I've always been the philosophy of, you get your work done however you get it done. If you work really well on a couch, then great, you know, sit on a couch. If you work better at night, then great, you know, leave early or, or come later, however that might work. We've always been very good about being flexible. And I think that's really the key now is flexibility in people's work schedule, balancing their life. You know, things have changed, you know, maybe, the, maybe there isn't a working mother or a working father and now the kids are home more and, and you've got to find that balance. And, and everyone here, we've begun to figure out that balance for us. For a, a company like ours, we do need to interact all the time. Mm-hmm. We truly need to, to pin things up on a wall and sit back and look at them and say, is this right? Are we doing this correctly? Are the proportions correct? We need to look at physical materials. I mean, during the pandemic, we were FedExing bricks back and forth to each other or pieces of carpet. I mean, it's a very inefficient way of working. In the South, we just drive by and throw them. It's a little different. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so there, there are many companies that need to physically be together. And it's, as you said, it's extremely important. And finding that balance is where that's the unknown right now. And I don't, I don't believe anybody knows where it'll ultimately end up. Well, if you have an entrepreneurial spirit, I mean, for the guy who says, you know what, let's create a software lab in our 100-year <laughs> architect firm, I think it's pretty cool. But I, I, before we wrap up, I wa- or I want to wrap up with this big idea, um, which I started laughing when I saw that, uh, not that you had started a podcast, but you called it the anti-architect. And I just laughed to myself <laughs> and said, well, if that's there's one thing the world needs, it's another anti-architect podcast. <laughs> What was the, I guess my first question is why and why the anti-architect? So, you know, part of it is that I find uh, in our profession that we don't, architects don't talk to one another enough Hmm. about the profession. They also don't talk about what we do well and what we don't do well, whether it's to our clients or consultants and when I was looking for a, you know, again, this was during COVID, you know, I'm a guy that's out there. I'm the one trying to generate a lot of the business here along with my partners. And, you know, this idea of generating business somehow virtually through Zoom never quite made sense. And how do I get the things that we're talking about and, and, and promoting? How do we get them out for people to, to consume? And so this idea of a podcast came up and listening to stuff like yours and Jack's and other podcasts, you know, I I felt that there was a a small little niche in there to be also critical of our profession. And look, in the end, my my podcast isn't super critical. It's not like we're sitting there ragging on everybody. 
But I do come at it from a different perspective. And that's where this idea of the anti-architect who's an architect, uh, you know, kind of came about. Mm -hmm. And what do architects, I ask the guests, I try to ask all the guests, you know, what do architects do well and what do they not do well? What's, what's, you know how this is in your profession. And one of my first questions to them all the time is, what annoys you about an architect? And somehow, everyone somehow can find something that annoys them if they've worked with an architect. <laughs> Uh, along the way. And that's not to say that architects are annoying or anything like that, but I'd love to have this idea or have this discussion with people and have other, whether it's architects or clients, hear how people think of us. It's only going to make us have a better conversation and and do better in our, in our world. I do talk about technology too and how that can help us. Uh, another thing that's amazing about our profession is we get access to people that Typically, you don't get. I mean, when you do a, I, I've told this before. When, when I did a, a building for Disney, Bob Iger came to the presentations, oh, wow. and because it was important that Bob <laughs> Iger had buy-in for those things, he didn't come to every meeting. He was the client, you know, and and it's it's bizarre. You're you're around people that you know you see on TV all the time. Oh, that's my client. Can you mm -hmm. believe I'm actually? I got to, I'm presenting for this guy, but in the end, they're just another client, right? And, and you've got to do the same thing you would for any, any client along the way. So it's a fascinating profession in that way because of the access. But then a lot of times we do some oddball things as architects and it'd be nice to kind of correct our behavior along the way. <laughs> I, I loved how you started off with architects don't really talk to each other. We don't share very much. So I'm going to start a podcast where we can share how we're critical of each other. I, it takes a lot of courage. What is there a particular, um, is there a particular theme when people are commenting about pleasant experiences with architects? Is there one or two themes that come through where they say, I really appreciate when I've really enjoyed working with an architect, here's the most common reason why, um, somebody absolutely yeah the, what comes across all the time is most people really appreciate the architect's passion mm. for what they do that it's it's more than a job that you know they take it very very personally and that that comes through in everything that an architect does and then on the flip side the common theme that of what what do architects do wrong all the time uh, is that they don't understand how much things cost, which I think is funny. Uh, uh, that wasn't going to be mine. Mine was, because uh, I asked myself this question, um, it was, they start shaking their head no <laughs> before, you know, I, I'm trying to ask something. And, and so we build big buildings and we have, there's big infrastructure. And what I've learned is, and this could be in, an architect of storage systems. This could be an architect of a building. These are architects of systems of different things. Yeah. Similar passion. But if I start to ask them something that they think they know where I'm going and they just start with a, like, sh just listen, <laughs> just listen. And then tell me, because almost, I'll bet you know this is, or this is probably your experience as well. There's very few things we can't get done that doesn't break Newtonian physics. Now, can yeah. I get them done as soon as you want? Can <laughs> I do them at the cost that you want? Can I do them to the accuracy that you want? Those are all on a scale that, you know, moves. 
And right. I would just appreciate, you know, I, my limited experience with architects is the ones that I love, just listen, genuinely listen and make notes. And instead of just saying no or shaking their head, they start asking qualifying questions to see if we can get, um, and they're more elegant in their um I see what you want. We probably could get the Statue of Liberty in every view <laughs> if we did that. You know, if the building rotated or whatever it was, instead of just yeah. like, no, I can't draw blue circles with red ink. I, you know, just listen to me. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's funny. So, how of um, where do you think you're going to go with the uh, with the podcast? Yeah, so you know, it's something where I've started where I release an episode every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as these themes begin to emerge, they're they're kind of taking me a little bit down a different road than where I started, right? And I think it's also beginning to open up the idea to other kinds of guests, maybe not architects, uh, you know, more and not necessarily related to architecture. I think this kind of some of the themes that have emerged um, really kind of get me excited about some other new topics that I'm going to start exploring, which are which is fun. It's always a uh, you know, the podcasting world is different to me. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not a professional broadcaster by any means, so it's been a fun, it's been a fun journey to learn learn along the way. So, well, you've certainly got a passion for it. I I would love to see. I don't know if you've done this yet, but it how to be a good client of an architect. If you haven't yeah. made one of those yet, that would be fantastic. I don't know who would listen to it, but it would be amazing. Even if it was a link on your site, look, if you want to interact with a firm like yeah. ours, here's how you can be best prepared for it. Here are, here are things that, you know, so that you can get the best experience. Here's common language. Here are things to avoid, if, you know, blah, 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 whatever it is. But so I could show up and like, wow, okay, I know how to be prepared yep. um, for my architect and make sure before I leave a meeting that just because I think we're on the same page, how do I actually confirm we're on the same page? Mm -hmm. Have you guys done anything like that? Similar, a, a few a few things like that, but I love that idea. I love kind of doing a deeper dive into that. That's a great idea. Yeah. Well, Christian, I have occupied a lot of your time today. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I, I've, I've enjoyed myself tremendously. You're a wonderful host. Thank you so much for spending all this time. My great pleasure. And we'll make sure we include in the links below links to um, your firm plus the tool belt and to your podcast. Everybody, uh, Christian Giordano, thank you for coming on the QTS Experience. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. 